Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Friday, March 17th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And a bipartisan group of senators have co-sponsored the Restrict Act. Oh, I hope this isn't one of those acts where the word restrict makes up the R part of restrict. Let's see. The senators were Warner, Thune, Democrat, Republican, Baldwin, Democrat, Fisher, Republican, Manchin, Democrat, Moran, Moran, Republican, Bennett, Democrat, Sullivan, Republican, Gillibrand, Democrat, Collins, Republican, Heinrich, Democrat, Romney, Republican. Ooh, six and six. So what does the Restrict Act stand for? The restricting, God, the emergence of security threats that risk information and communication technology restrict act. Yeah, it's the anti-TikTok bill. And Joe Biden has taken it up. It does target TikTok. Everyone agrees that TikTok needs a targeting. Well, maybe not Charlie D'Amelio, but I do remember when Donald Trump made a similar proposal, there was some sentiment of, yeah, TikTok is worrisome, but a lot more, ooh, that guy's just butthurt. Do people still say butthurt? Let's ask TikTok influencer Ryan Higa. Butthurt people. People who are easily offended and react in an overly dramatic fashion, usually starting with the word wow. I guess they do. Anyway, let's recall what the argument was in 2020 when Trump floated a ban of TikTok. Yes, TikTok was a Chinese company, and sure, there were security concerns, but also, remember the TikTok teens? They bought up tickets to an event in Tulsa, and Trump was angered by all the no-shows that resulted. Tens of thousands of TikTok teens tricked Trump's Tulsa ticketing. On the Young Turks, they pointed to the TikTok teens as something of a tipping point. There was some rumors that people on TikTok we're saying, hey, you guys, this, this, this builds information, buy up tickets, free tickets for his show, and then don't show up, watch, and it's gonna be so funny. And I'm not sure how much that contributed to it, I think minimally, but that's one of those things that could get under a thin-skinned person like Donald Trump and be like, TikTok is the reason. He goes after Twitter and yeah. Facebook, and, and I don't know if he's going after Instagram, yet, but he's going after all of them for any small thing they've done that have hurt him in his mind. This could be mm-hmm. just enough of a thing to push him over the tipping points. And maybe it was just the tipping point, as J.R. Jackson there was saying, maybe because Trump proposed it, but also a little bit about why he proposed it and how he proposed it in a typically haphazard manner that did not survive legal scrutiny. Maybe that led so many of us to believe that it wasn't a necessary policy. But I think it might have been. And now there seems to be wide agreement, not just federally, but in state after state, that TikTok is a threat. The problem is, do you just ban TikTok, an app worth $50 billion? That will create tension, a huge headache. The easier off-ramp is to force a buyer. Not that easy because as the New York Times reports today, finding a buyer for TikTok may not be so easy. See, the Biden administration is pushing TikTok's Chinese owners to sell the app or face a possible ban, but there are complications for finding a suitor. The chief complication is that any company rich enough to buy TikTok, like Google, i.e. Alphabet, or Microsoft, would also face antitrust scrutiny, which is quite a strong plank of the Biden administration. So just as Trump was stymied by TikTok teens, Biden will have to show some flexibility with his anti-TikTok, antitrust clash of values. Next week, TikTok's chief executive will testify 
before the House of Representatives. So now the clock is tick-tocking. On the show today, it's an Antoine Tig. All will be unmasked. Plus, not just a lobster, but lobsters. But first, Ted Kay, longtime editor of The Raven, a journal of vexillology, author of the book Good Flag, Bad Flag, a board member of NAVA, North American Vexillological Association, which is out with their big new Flags of Cities survey. This is a visual. Check the show notes to a link for all 312 of the very best flags. Tulsa, Reno, Salem, oh, and also the bottom of the list, the dregs of drapery. You got to check out the city of Ranger. To quote the very words on the flag of the city of Ranger, city of Ranger, walk away, Texas Ranger, and Coal Valley Township. Oof, I've seen better depictions of coal mining in the movie Zoolander, but you'll get it all here. It gets a little testy with me and Ted Kay. All this evangelizing about flag greatness, I think may have narrowed flag success to a bit of a narrow band. The failures of the flags actually are more diverse than the successes, but also more garish. Anyway, it's flag talk. It gets real. You know how we like to chop it up on the vexillology tip. Ted Kay up next. Well, the results of the big city flag survey are in. NAVA, the North American Vexillological Association, put forward 312 known city designs. Users voted. Thousands, 8,000 people participated in the survey. And letter grades were given out. And those letters then became numbers. And now we could say, you're doing fine, Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're also doing okay, Norman, Oklahoma. Wheeling, West Virginia, where I spent many a youthful week And also, high on the list, Lincoln, Nebraska, Pocatello, Idaho, not just one of the best flags, but what an improvement if you remember the old Pocatello. Then we get to some of the worst, Miami Township in Ohio. I've also spent time there, which I would like to uh, alert you to if you just are going to go in blind and aren't ready for what you're going to face. Every letter in the word Miami is a different font, wildly disparate. We'll go over these choices and more with Ted Kay, editor emeritus of Raven, the Journal of the North American Vexillological Association. Ted is also secretary of that organization. He joins us in the GIST's Vexillology Corner. Ted, welcome back to the GIST. Thanks for inviting me back, Mike. Were you pleased, shocked, surprised by the results of the study? Well, our study asked people to rate the design qualities of 312 new American flags that have been adopted in the last seven years. And there are some really highly rated great designs and some that floated to the bottom of the stack. And I was actually surprised that so many flags got D or F grades. We've spent a lot of time trying to help the world know about good flag design. And I've really surprised that uh, 60% of the flags got a D or an F grade. We had 2,800 people respond, 300 of our members and 2,500 people from the public responded to our survey. So a lot of people responded. And my personal scores were very consistent with those of the consensus of the group that the flag designs that floated to the bottom really look like business cards. They, they have writing all over them. They are They are really sort of banners or just signs rather than true flags. Uh, and, and an important thing to consider is that 
the, the primary function of a flag is signaling at a distance. You want to be able to make out what the flag says and remember its symbolism so that you know what it represents. And flags with writing on them, you can't see that writing at a distance. It's backwards when the flag's flying the other direction. And a lot of these cities just miss the opportunity to have a great flag design. So I'm going to submit a couple of challenging theories. One is, and I agree with you, you've convinced me, we've talked enough, what makes a good flag and what makes a bad flag. But not everyone agrees. And it's not necessarily that they're wrong. Some people might be looking to flag, for flags, at flags, to have a different purpose. I bet you that there are many people, many town fathers and mothers from places like Baldwin, Missouri, or Holy Springs, Mississippi, or Richfield, Minnesota, where they maybe had a design and they showed someone and the number one reaction they got was, well, how do we even know it means Baldwin? How do we even know it means Richfield? And maybe they tried to say, well, this is what the mountain means and this is what we had this color for the field and here's how it works. And still people would say, I don't know why that's Baldwin. So you just give up and you're right, Baldwin, establish 1837. Does it look like a business card? It absolutely looks like a business card. But I got to think that there are just some people who maybe even heard the TED Talk and have been listening to our episodes who they just had a constituency where the more grandiose ideas didn't fly appropriate for a flag. I, I think that's that's a very sound theory. I, I, I have found myself wondering why did 60% of these new flags post-Roman Mars TED Talk, post-Good Flag, Bad Flag, end up being so poorly rated. And I believe that we've done a great job of teaching the flag designers. Yes. Flag designers do, when you run a contest, there are going to be great designs in almost any contest. We've done a very poor job of teaching the flag choosers. We haven't helped the city officials or the committees enough to understand what the benefit of a great design would be. And so they default to, well, we just think it's a sign to say what city it is, and so it's got to have the name on it. I, I, I think that uh, there's a higher level of education that we need to go through to help the deciders understand what good does it do a city to have a great design. And that's a harder lift than just design principles and such. Here's another, I'm not going to call it pushback, but here's something I think. I think about baseball and the revolution in statistics, and there were people all along. Um, Bill James was perhaps the most prominent. Then there was a blog called Fire Joe Morgan. One of the guys who did that is Mike Schur of The Good Place. And they would... I don't know if you want to say angry, they would proselytize about what they found. And what they found is things like walks are really important and don't waste your outs on stolen bases. And they were right. They were right in terms of making baseball teams better and more efficient. And then eventually the more baseball teams understood what they were preaching, the better those teams got. But now we're at a place where there is a sameness to the strategy of all baseball teams because the proselytizers were so successful, all the product looks the same. And when I look at your top 25 flags, I see a little of that. I don't know that there is a great variety in what 
the NAVA community and the uh, people who've been trained in what makes a good flag or bad flag. I don't know that there is the surprising out of the blue. I never expected it, but it works for a flag. I worry, Ted, do you? Um, I think this is a function more of the fact that we asked a bunch of people their opinions. Yes. And this is the consensus of that group. If you look at the entire range of 312 flags, you'll find a lot of variety. There's a lot in the in the top, uh, you know, the A's and the B's, uh, the, the flags that got A's and B's grades that that have tremendous variety. Mm-hmm. At the same time, at the same time, the flags that floated at the top are relatively simple or truly simple designs. And if and to the extent that's a sameness, well, that's that's what flags are all about. If you look at national flags, there's the same idea. Nearly all national flags, especially civil flags, the ones that take seals off, are simple designs because the stakes are higher and nations have figured out that if they want their their ultimate icon, their symbol to be recognizable at a distance, it needs to be simple. Are there flags, and I have the uh, list open, I don't know if you have your list available, who aren't in the top 25 or who are more unusual and creative flags that you would point to as really working, in your opinion? Well, uh, a flag that's that's near the top, but not uh, in the top 25. I mean, we just had to cut off a group to show on the website. I think uh, Elk Ridge's flag from Utah is a great flag. It's a horizontal I agree. horizontal tri-bar of three three colors, and in the middle is a great big elk. And if you look at that, you can recognize there's an elk on it, and you can remember that that represents Elk Ridge. That's just a fantastic representational flag for the city that it represents. Yeah, I think Burlington, Vermont is a fantastic design as well. It's got uh, four jagged stripes of blue, white, green, white, blue that represent the, the mountains, the Green Mountain, Vermont, and the, the lakes and rivers of, of Vermont there. It was designed by a pair of uh, 12-year-old uh, twins, uh, some boys that were, were out of school because of a teacher's strike, and their mom wanted them to uh, participate in something, and they worked on the Burlington flag contest and their design one. Yeah, that's a that's just a super design. Uh, I I have a couple tests that I think are great tests of whether a flag design really will work for a city. One is, what do you think it will look like on the shoulder patch of a public safety officer? Mm. You know, a firefighter or a police officer or an EMT. Uh, what will that flag work as a patch? That's yeah. a relatively small thing. The other is, are people going to use it as a tattoo? <laughs> when people start getting the tattoo of the city flag, you know that design's been successful. And yeah. we see that in Washington, D.C. and Chicago and other cities with great city flags. People will show their city flag to show their city pride. Let me, let me tell you a flag that did not rate well because there's a letter involved. In fact, it's almost all the letter. But I liked, I just appreciated they went for it. Aberdeen, Washington. I don't know if you want to call that up, and I will, we have a link to this list in our show notes, and people could look at Aberdeen. It's black background, yellow, 
not even all of the letter of Aberdeen, maybe half the A in Aberdeen. Just what's it doing? It raises questions. Is it sneaking around a corner? Is it inviting you in? I know it's not adherent perhaps to the great principles of flag design, but I'm glad that attempt lives. I would. I uh, personally, I gave that flag a nine. Okay, I think that's good, a, I good. think that's a great, great design. I, I wanted I want to distinguish between the idea of writing on a flag saying Montana, mm-hmm. which backwards when the you see the other side of the flag it says Anatnam. Yeah, writing on a flag is different from the idea of using a letter as a symbol. For example, the Colorado flag has a big C on it. The Ohio flag has a big O on it. But that's using the letter as a symbol rather than trying to. Mm write a word rather than using a a graphic symbol to represent something. Aberdeen's using that A in in a very, well, cut the A in half. It's this abstract thing. Aberdeen's right on the coast of Washington. There's a, there's an idea of it's right over on the, on the side. I I love Aberdeen's flag. Yeah. Good. The public gave it a C, the experts gave it a C of 4.63, but I'm glad you- Well, and, and, you know, I, I think it's important to say that we're telling you what the average rating was, that there were lots of people who gave that flag an eight, nine, or a 10. Yeah. It's just a lot of people gave it a two, three, or a four, and it averaged out in the in the middle. Right. So it's good to hear that some flags are a little bit polarizing, that Aberdeen is like the Terrence Malick of flags. You either love <laughs> it or you hate it. Um, I come to another one that I think is a bit underrated, wondering what you think about Union City, Indiana. I believe it got a 4.85. And the reason I call it underrated is, I'm not going to say it's uh, an aesthetic beauty and it does violate some symbols, but I learned something. I literally, by looking and reading, I know that's not great, the flag, I learned something about Union City, Indiana. Uh, Do you want to guess? I give Union City a much higher grade myself, a much higher ranking than the average. Now, Union City happens to be a city that lies exactly on the boundary between Indiana and Ohio. And its flag explains that. That's what I'm saying, yeah. (laughs) It shows a silhouette of Indiana and Ohio. It's a mappy flag, as we call them. And the, the flag of Union City shows the border between the two states and puts a big star on the border that says, here's who, where we are. The state line goes right down the middle of our, of our city. I think it's a very powerful uh, design. It's a challenge because it's the, the combining the silhouette of Ohio and Indiana creates a kind of a blob that if you don't know what you're looking at, it's kind of hard to recognize. Right. I'm like, is that a hawk? What's going on? And then I right. got it. And then right. in that moment of revelation, most flags don't provide that. Right. Now, personally, uh, if they asked me, how would you improve this? I would make the silhouettes a little bit more stylized. There's a lot of detail in that. It'd be very hard to sew that flag. I would make right, it much more right. stylized Indiana and a stylized Ohio. And that may might make it easier to recognize. Yeah, I I agree. You're doing fine, Union City. Union City, you see. So the last question is, I don't know if you've been in contact with any of these people who work there, but is the new Pocatello flag flying proudly over the sewage department as we speak? (laughs) I think it flies at City Hall now. And uh, for those who are interested, there's actually a TED Talk 
created by Logan McDougall, a TEDx talk, uh, the communications officer of Pocatello at the time who ran the flag design contest and took it from idea to completion. It's a wonderful story that any city could aspire to. And so if any city's uh, officials are listening to your podcast, Mike, I hope they track down the Pocatello TEDx talk by Logan McDougall. Ted Kay is the editor emeritus of Raven, which is the journal of the North American Vexillological Association. He is the secretary of that organization. He comes on every so often to talk flag design in Vexillology Corner. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel, it is an Antoine Tig, a three-week period in which we get back to you, the listeners, all the things you emailed about, all the things you contacted me about, all the things that you furiously shook a fist in my direction and swore never, never again. And I'm not exaggerating that much because on February 27th, I did a spiel on masks. The peg, the immediate peg, was a Brett Stevens column in the New York Times, but I want to rewind a little bit to talk about how I got to masks as an issue and why it's important rather than just the exact words in that spiel and how people took them. So I can't get into everyone who wrote into me, but I will single out Cecilia Weber because she pointed me to a podcast that I listen to often, Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota. And he's a really respected voice and he really does not respect the Cochrane study. So I want to play a bit of what Dr. Osterholm said about Dr. Jefferson, the lead author of Cochrane. I can say with certainty the Cochrane Review staff that generated this one regarding Tomas are some of the same people that I had terrible concerns about and what they did with influenza vaccine reviews some 10 years ago. And so I do not consider the Cochrane Reviews a gold standard. And I'll share with you in a moment exactly why. They came in with a point of view and the people who were part of that have been well known for their point of view. So that from my perspective, while some would say it's a gold standard, I'll tell you it is not. If there's anything we need a study of, it's a study of the Cochrane Review process and just how good is it or isn't it, depending on who's involved with it. I took that into account. Did not make me discount Jefferson. I know that Jefferson's kind of a rebel in the virology community. There was an Atlantic article in, I think, 2008 that had him eating alone at a big conference because people don't like what he has to say. But often he has to say pretty interesting things. Not interesting and wrong, but interesting and hard to rebut from a factual level. On February 13th, I first read about this Cochrane study in The Atlantic. Masking has widely been seen as one of the best COVID precautions that people can take. Still, it has parked ceaseless arguments over mandates, what types of masks we should wear, and even how we should wear them. A new review and meta-analysis of masking studies suggests that the detractors may have a point. The paper, a rigorous assessment of 78 studies, was published by Cochrane, an independent policy institute that has become well-known for its reviews, and the authors found little to no evidence that masking at the population level reduce COVID infections. Huh, interesting. So interesting, I got in touch with my producers and said, let us book someone on this issue. Maybe the author of the Atlantic piece. A couple days later, Lana Wen in the Washington Post wrote about the Cochrane Review. She said, based on the Cochrane Review, I think it's fair to conclude that evidence doesn't support masking to reduce community transmission if adherence is variable. And that is the whole point of a masking study or a study of mandates because adherence is always variable. People don't perfectly wear their masks, so they were looking to see 
masks as worn imperfectly or an imperfect mask or a mask, not a respirator. How do they do in stopping COVID? And like when in the Atlantic before them and the Cochrane Review concluded, the evidence shows not that great. Again, I was interested and I thought that the way I would discuss it on the show and address it on the show is to talk to experts. And indeed, experts are booked. Monday and Tuesday, the entire show will be turned over to David Zweig one day and Dr. Caitlin Jettelina another day, who writes the Your Local Epidemiologist blog. I'll also have Michael Slauson on. So we're really covering this, not in the realm of opinion, but in the realm of what does studies say. Still, I needed to talk about it because beyond a Brett Stevens article, this issue had become a flashpoint. And there was the Brett Stevens article in the framing. There was the pushback. And there was my observation that there was a lot of shoddy evidence gathering and science going on, mostly from the people who took what Brett Stevens was saying as masks don't work. Now, maybe Brett Stevens was saying that. Let's look at the evidence. Headline of that piece, I mean, if he was trying to convince us that masks don't work, he might say something like masks don't work in the headline. The headline was the mask mandates did nothing. Will any lessons be learned? Okay, that doesn't say masks don't work. That says mask mandates. In the piece itself, he says, the analysis does not prove that proper masks worn properly had no benefit at an individual level. People may have good personal reasons to wear masks and they may have the discipline to wear them consistently. Their choices are their own. Again, pretty clearly going out of his way to say, if not masks work, then I'm not saying they don't work on the individual level. I, I, Mike Pesca, am saying they do work on the individual level. Of course they do, especially respirators, not masks, technically. Well-fitted N95s. But if masks didn't work, why would doctors use them? And that's why, in my spiel, I was addressing the question of, do mask mandates work? And I went back and I looked at the spiel and I saw how many times I said masks. It was 40 times. And within the word masks or masking, there was always a reference, often right before it or right after it, to the word mandate or population level. I'm not going to redo the whole spiel for you, but I said, they came out with a big study on masks. Their methodology was to review randomized controlled trials, which themselves are considered the gold standard. What they found, according to The Atlantic, was the author's review found little to no evidence that masking at the population level reduced COVID infections. Quoted Leanna Wen and said, thus answering the questions, do mask mandates work? I talked about, it's a blow against mask mandates. And then in the next sentence, I said, it is not a blow against masking for the immunocompromised or anyone else who's careful about the right ways of wearing their specifically N95 masks. Do mask. Only an idiot would say not to mask. So the purpose of this and the purpose of revisiting it to this extent in the Antwentig is not to say, see, I said all these things that maybe some people took the wrong way. Maybe some people were really angry about and accuse me of not reading the study and not knowing what I'm talking about. And, and at one point, becoming so nasty that I had to say, <laughs> I haven't done this before. I said to one listener who's a frequent emailer, and we've often had constructive exchanges, I said, this is not how I wish to be talked to. If you cannot talk to me in a more constructive way, please do not talk to me. I will block you, and you don't have to listen to the show. And now we're getting on fine, and we've both appealed to the best practices of interaction. But why? The question was, why so much anger? And I think so much mm -hmm. misinterpretation of what I said. It could be that I said it wrong. It could be that I wasn't clear enough. It could be that even though I always said masks and mandates, there was 
enough pauses. <laughs> there was enough phrasing between the word mandates and the word mask that you could have gotten the wrong impression. I will cop to it. By the end, at the end of my spiel, I said, the important thing is actually coming up with the public health measures that will improve the public's health. If it's not masking, and there seems to be evidence that's not particularly, if at all, effective, don't fight that. Think about what is effective. Okay. If you were doing a anti-Pesca campaign ad, you could take that sentence and say, Mike Pesca doesn't believe in masking. But every single time before that, I always said mandates, mandates, mandates. And at the end, I said, if it's not masking in relation to public health, but you're right, you're right. I should have said, if it's not a mask mandate, and there seems to be evidence that it's not particularly effective to install mask mandates, then again, if you're communicating defensively, if you're communicating so as not to have that negative campaign ad cut against you, you're not being the most interesting you could be. You're not taking your listener to the most rewarding places they could be taken. You're just not operating at the top of your creative and intellectual game. You're being defensive. You're in a crouch. And the good thing about communicating on this show is it's all opt-in. Uh, I know you, as my listeners, don't always agree with me. And I've talked about something like 70 or 80% threshold where you're like, I'm out. But I assume mostly there is agreement. But I also know this is a very, very fraught subject. And I know that there have been surveys and studies that show that masking is effective. That's absolutely true. Not random controlled trials, not enough of them to outweigh the few that have been done and show that it doesn't work. And also, I'll acknowledge, there's another thing I could have done. I could have laid out all of my sophisticated knowledge about random controlled trials and talk about the difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Maybe I should have acknowledged, hey, not every excellent study is uh, an RCT, right? Smoking, like there are no RCTs about smoking. Scientists didn't tell 500 people to smoke and 500 people not to and then study them over 50 years. That would be unethical. Yet we know from observational trials that something like smoking is really bad for you among the ways that we know that smoking is bad for you. I could have done all of that. Um, I think that there is a certain portion of the public that just really, really believes that the studies show that masking works and believes that since it's Brett Stevens, maybe some others they don't agree with who are pointing to the studies that masking doesn't work, that those are bad faith actors not to be taken seriously. Furthermore, Tom Jefferson, who's an apostate, who is at the center of this study, who is the lead scientist, did go beyond the parameters of the study itself and did say, yeah, masks don't work. They totally don't work. And that's not true. I mean, that's not at least what's shown in the study. I also know that Zenyap Tefeki, who is also a New York Times op-ed writer, wrote sort of a, a counter op-ed to the Brett Stevens op-ed, and people wrote into me and saying, okay, you're going to correct yourself. No, if you read the, and I think you did, if you read the Tefeki op-ed, she quoted Carla Soares-Weiser, who is the editor-in-chief of the Cochrane Library, right? So she's the administrator who is Tom Jefferson's boss, and Soares Weiser clarified, she said, many commentators have claimed that a recently updated Cochrane review shows that, quote, masks don't work, which is an inaccurate and misleading interpretation. Indeed, it is. People were saying, oh, this Cochrane review says that masks don't work. Cochrane review is wrong. Ma Cochrane review never said that. The lead author said that in an interview, and I don't think he should have. I don't think the evidence is there. But I wasn't arguing that masks don't work. I don't think Stevens was arguing that masks don't work. Certainly know from listening to this and Twin Tig, I'm telling you masks work, but 
the Tufeki update is not a rebuttal, actually, of the interpretation of the original Cochrane study that there is no evidence, not enough evidence, little evidence that mask mandates work. Why is this important? Well, we all bemoan the idea that masks have become political. I said, I can't believe they've become political. Do we really mean that we can't believe they've become political? Or do we mean, I can't believe that the idea of opposing a mask mandate has become political? That I can believe because a mandate is necessarily a political thing. Ron DeSantis will be running for president. He de facto is de facto DeSantis. And he will say, among His policy positions, why you should vote for me, are look at all the things I've done in Florida. I've, and then he'll list a bunch of things which are, I think, not accomplishments at all, right? I struck out against CRT. I'm anti drag queen. I stocked the leadership of of the new college with right wing ideologues. I ended the mask mandate early. And there will be plenty of people who will say, yeah, yeah, all those things are horrible and bad policies. But not all of them are in the same category. The portion of the public that wants to hear wrong, 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 wrong about all those policies, they'll be able to hear it. There are plenty of outlets out there telling them wrong down the line. But if we are to be perfectly fair, and if we are to say, you know, your policy on drag queens is nothing but motivated by fear and a lack of logic and no evidence, we'd be right. And then if we applied that to the mask mandates, we'd be wrong. It would be an overstatement. I don't know. Maybe let me get in a defensive crouch. Am I saying that Ron DeSantis was right to end the mass mandates? No. As I said in the original spiel, knowing what we know then, it seemed like a good idea, a proper idea. And there is some evidence that some mask mandates worked. Also evidence that sometimes they didn't. Certainly evidence that there are trade-offs. But it's not the same thing if we were to be intellectually consistent. It's not the same thing to say that Ron DeSantis was as wrong about mandates as, I don't know, Donald Trump is about blasting the area with UV rays or with using ivermectin. It's different. It belongs in a different category. We as me, as a fair assessor of these public people offering public policies, I just think has to be fair about that. I believe right now where we stand are that there is good evidence that mask mandates don't do much. There is some evidence that they, in some circumstances, have done something. But there's also evidence that in some circumstances they haven't done anything. And remember, if you do a study and it shows no effect, that study doesn't get published. I think it's the sort of area where we say reasonable people could disagree Of course, there are no reasonable people anymore. It is pretty mythological, except maybe you, the gist listener, certainly the one, the gist listener who made it this far and thus far in the end, Twin Tig. Now let us go from that area where we are at each other's throats to an area of coming together. And that is what we, Michelle and I, have done with and for the Danushkin family. I have an update on our Ukrainian refugees, and it is a very happy update. First of all, I appeal to you guys, the listeners, $23,000 raised and counting. And then in a subsequent spiel, I talked about crossing the experiential threshold, which is to talk about how frustrating getting housing in New York is as to experience it rather than to just know about it obliquely or uh, through a circumstance where you're not desperate. And man, did people come to the fore. Among them are my co 
Lobstars of the Antoine Tig. Claire Wolfowitz wrote in, tried to pitch us on Montgomery County. I want to move there. She talked about, the, she put together a, a, a document, a dossier. She talked about the schools. She talked about the transportation. She talked about the housing that she could arrange. It was fantastic. Tommy Daigle did the same thing about North Carolina. Talked about his own personal interactions and knowledge of placement for students with disabilities as Dima, the uh, 12-year-old, does in our family. Uh, talked about working with a commercial construction superintendent trying to get a job for Sergei. Rental information, it was amazing. They didn't move to Maryland or North Carolina. It seemed desperate that they might have to. But then Douglas Hanau got in touch with us. This is what he does for a living. He works for a company that has a lot of apartments. He found an apartment that worked with their budget, an apartment that didn't require first month, last month, middle month, security, an apartment where because he knew of me and he knew of them, we got them into the apartment. They're living in this apartment in New York City. I think they're going to be okay. It's thanks to our three co-lobstars of the Antoine Tig. Thank you, Douglas, Claire, and Tommy. And more than thank you, you've done a great thing. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's producer, and Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is vice president of charitable giving for Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.